Welcome to session four of our study in Hebrews. My name is Megan Rund, and I'm excited to dive into Hebrews with you today. But first, a small confession. I have seen more courtroom dramas over the years than I should probably admit to, and I'm pretty convinced that I would be an amazing lawyer. I love to research things more than most people think is natural or healthy. I love learning all the details about a topic almost to a point of absurdity. And once I have a deep knowledge of something, what I wanna do most is to share that knowledge because the real fun comes in seeing someone else delight in the same geeky information and being able to talk about it together. So the idea of putting together facts and evidence with the goal of creating a persuasive argument or narrative in the way that lawyers do, that sounds right up my alley. And when I first began studying the book of Hebrews, my first thought was that this whole book sounds like a lawyer presenting a case in a court of law. The writer seems to have structured this book as though his Hebrew audience is a jury and he is carefully presenting his case for their consideration. He takes them step by step, showing them all the ways in which Jesus is superior. He uses what is familiar to them as a foundation for his argument, the Hebrew Bible, scripture that they would already know, trust, and believe. He connects the dots for them, showing them how the facts and evidence prove his case beyond a reasonable doubt. His desire is that his audience would walk away from the hearing of this letter utterly convinced that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures, the divine son of Yahweh, not creature, but creator, the true and better of all that has come before him. He is the one they have been waiting for. He is the one they need. Today, you and I are seated in that jury box and we get to decide for ourselves. The words in the book of Hebrews and in the entirety of the Bible still speak to us today and invite us to consider, is this Jesus the one we have been waiting for? Is he the one we need? Get comfortable because in today's session, we get to hear the writer's arguments that declare Jesus to be the giver of true and better rest. But let's begin with prayer. God, we thank you for the time that you have given us to set aside for the study of your word. We pray that we would be worshipful and have a right heart posture as we approach your word together. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all understanding and truth as we study. Amen. Well, we are going to approach today's text in three sections. Section one, Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through 14, restless hearts. Section two, Hebrews chapter three, verse 15 through chapter four, verse two, restless unbelief. And section three is going to be Hebrews chapter four, verses three through 13, faithful rest. But before we dive into section one, let's take a minute to talk about what is being referred to in the book of Hebrews as rest, because it's not quite what we would normally define. So we're gonna talk about four characteristics of this rest. First, it is designed by God. 
He created it, he enjoys it, and he invites us to share it with him. Number two, it is active. When God rested on the seventh day, he ceased his work and began enjoying his creation and living in personal relationship with the people he had created. The better rest that Christ secures for us is not a state of being inactive. For today, it is an invitation to end one kind of work, work that is done only for ourselves, and begin another kind, work that is done in obedience to God. For tomorrow, it is a promise that we will cease to live in this present existence and begin living in the heavenly realms, in the presence of our creator. Third, rest is for worship. In the Old Testament, the idea of rest is closely tied to worship. In rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he took them out of a place where they were not allowed to worship him and gave them the promised land where they would enjoy rest on all sides and be able to worship God rightly. In the same way, the better rest that Jesus secures for us is an ability to worship God rightly today and to enjoy his presence forever. And fourth, rest is in the heavenly realm. The place of better rest is the same heavenly sanctuary where Jesus, our great high priest, is seated at the right hand of the Father. But because it is in the heavenly realm, it is not bound by time or space. Well, this week's scripture and the foundation of the writer's arguments here are centered around references to Psalm 95. Well, let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and notice that the writer is attributing divine authorship to the verses he's about to quote from Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Using Psalm 95 as the foundation of his argument in these verses, the writer of Hebrews wants the audience to learn from mistakes of the past. So the question we need to answer is, what mistakes of the Israelites does the book of Hebrews urge us not to repeat? The original audience would have known the answer to this question because they had been raised to know the Hebrew Bible and the mistakes to which Psalm 95 referred. As we look at Psalm 95, remember that more details of these events can be found in Exodus 17 and Numbers 12 through 14, which you were asked to read and consider in your homework this week. But to summarize, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He protected, led, and provided for them to give them rest and safety in a new land. But the way was difficult and confusing and scary. And instead of trusting the God who rescued them, the people complained, built and worshiped idols, and refused to enter the promised land. 
in these accounts, we see two things. First, we see God's intentions, actions, and commands. And second, we see the people's response, the mistakes that Hebrews warns us not to repeat. Their first mistake, which we see in verse 8, was that they hardened their hearts. When we look back at the passages in Exodus and Numbers, we see that the people hardened their hearts by refusing to believe God's promises, openly disobeying his commands, questioning his character and his goodness, and saying he was not trustworthy. Instead of trusting God's character in a time of fear and uncertainty, they chose to ignore all that God had done for them to lead them and protect them and provide for them in the wilderness. In these, it is these sinful, unbelieving choices that hardened their hearts. The second mistake we see in verse 9 was that they continually tested and tried God. Despite all he had done to prove that he was trustworthy, all of the miraculous works that God had done, they continued to ask him to provide again and again. He had given them overwhelming evidence that justified placing all their hope, trust, and faith in him. But instead of trusting God's past faithfulness in their present uncertainty, they essentially said, what you have done is not enough. Show us more and perhaps we will believe you. God did show them more, but they never believed. So God declared in his anger, they will never enter my rest. And we know the rest of the story, right? That generation was not allowed to enter the place that God intended for their rest and flourishing. The writer of Hebrews wants his audience to take a different path than the Israelites. And all of scripture is God's invitation for us to do the same. So what must we do to avoid the same judgment as the Israelites? The writer gives us the answer in verses 12 through 14. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end." They must pay attention to the choices they make. Be thoughtful and intentional because every choice exposes the heart and motive behind it. And we must encourage each other every day to stay on that narrow path that leads to rest, the path of faithful obedience. Verse 12 says that this protects us from having evil, unbelieving hearts like the Israelites. They lacked belief, faith, and trust, and this led to falling away from the living God. The $10 word for this, for this falling away, is apostasy. And Joy will share more about this in session six, but for now, let's talk a little bit about falling away because it sounds like something passive that just happens. But that passive falling away 
always points to something active, a choice or an action. I think we've all seen videos of people bungee jumping, right? Picture that scene with me for a moment. Someone is standing on the edge of a bridge, arms out to the side, slowly leaning backwards, and finally falling more and more quickly away from view. As she falls away, gravity pulls her down. But let's consider what happened before gravity took control. How many decisions led to that moment of falling away? The jumper chose to fall backward, but she also chose to take transportation to the bridge that day and rent or buy the gear needed to do the jump and put on that gear. All of her choices led to that falling away. But at any point, up to the moment she let gravity take control, she could have made a choice to stop the momentum toward that fall. Where are your choices taking you? Small or large, every choice adds momentum to the direction we're heading. And like a friendship that falls by the wayside in the busyness of life, distance from God is made one small choice at a time. But the distance didn't just happen on its own. It is the direct result of an unbelieving heart. Choices that we make because like the Israelites, we are not trusting God's character and goodness, despite all that we have seen and heard. And if left unchecked, the end result of those choices is seen in verse 11. Those who go astray in their hearts, who provoke God and test him, who do not walk in his ways, they will never enter his rest. So if disobedience causes us to forfeit God's rest, then obedience would guarantee it, right? Well, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No matter how obedient we are, it will never be enough to make us right with God. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags and our sins sweep us away. So what are we to do? Disobedience will keep us from God's rest, but obedience can't save us? No, our only hope is in the righteousness of Christ offered to, cheat to each of us in exchange for the stain of our own sin. And our merciful God desires that all would be saved. While our sinful choices lead us down a path away from God and his perfect rest, it's never too late to take a detour that points back to the straight and narrow way. Now, Hebrews offers this warning. If we allow unbelief to take root in our hearts, we will fall away from the living God. So take care. Don't let this happen to you like it did to them. The writer is begging. And while we are all responsible for our own choices, no one can choose to receive Christ for you. These verses are also a call to community, a call to discipleship. John Piper says this, 
unbelief is such a constant and dangerous temptation that we must help each other fight it off. Persevering in faith to the end is a community project. We meet and form relationships of mutual accountability and love because our faith depends on it. And our entering God's rest depends on our faith. We must not follow each other into sin and disillusionment or even stand aside and watch our sisters fall away because of their unbelief or our fear that it might get messy if we get involved. No, we are to exhort or strongly encourage one another to stay on the path of righteousness and truth that none may be hardened by sin, that none might fall away. This is what it means to truly share in Christ. This is true Christian unity and faith, holding firmly to our original confidence and exhorting those around us to do the same. As believers, we have a responsibility to one another to exhort one another to remain faithful and obedient. James 5, 19 and 20 says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We have a mutual responsibility to one another as fellow believers to encourage, admonish, rebuke, and disciple one another with kindness, mercy, love, and grace. This is a hard calling, sisters. This is not a calling to artificial unity where the goal is just to keep the peace. This is a calling to get in the trenches together. This is a calling to speak the truth in love, to reconciliation and forgiveness, to give our time in teaching and training those who are younger in the faith and to seek wisdom and guidance from those who have gone before us. So what about you? What barriers might you ask God to remove that may be preventing you from having this heart posture? Whatever they may be, our God desires that our relationship would reflect his truth, love, and compassion to those around us. And he is faithful to change and sanctify us as we seek him. So let's recap. What mistake did the Israelites make? Despite hearing God's voice, the Israelites hardened their hearts and they put God to the test. As a result, they were not permitted to enter God's rest. And this brings us to our main truth for section one. The sin of unbelief hardens our hearts and prevents us from entering the better rest that Christ offers. The sin of unbelief hardens our hearts and prevents us from entering the better rest that Christ offers. You and I aren't walking in a literal wilderness today, but God is still asking us to trust him to bring us to the place of rest and flourishing that he has promised to us. And he has set before us the same kinds of evidence for his character that he gave to the Israelites, his intentions, his actions, and his commands. God reveals his character to us through his word. 
and through all that he has done for us in the past. When we choose to ignore the evidence that he gives to us, we are acting in sinful unbelief. And when we refuse to trust him in present uncertainty, we are testing him, essentially saying, what you have done is not enough. Show me more, and perhaps then I will believe you. But if sending his only son to take on the penalty of our own sin isn't enough to prove his character and intentions to us, nothing ever will be. As part of your homework this week, you were encouraged to outline portions of this week's scripture. If you found this challenging, I want you to be encouraged because this book is notoriously difficult to outline. One tip I found helpful is to use the writer's pattern of evidence and conclusion or arguments and applications as structure for your outline. And this is how I've structured section two of my talk. So we'll look at three pieces of evidence the writer gives here, and then we'll look at the conclusions drawn from that evidence and how we might apply it to our lives today. Evidence one in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? We can't rebel against a boundary we don't know or understand. We can be ignorant, but we can't rebel. The writer reminds us that Israel had heard God's commands and yet rebelled. And we know from chapter 3, verse 9, that they also saw. They heard the sounds of plagues and locusts and frogs afflicting Egypt. And they saw that within the borders of their settlement, God's people were not affected. They heard the thunder coming from the top of Mount Sinai, and they cowered in fear, begging God to spare them. They heard the frightened cries of their children, begging for water in the desert, and they saw living water flowing from dead rock. The list goes on and on. The Israelites heard the commands of God through his servant Moses. They knew what was expected of them by their holy God. They saw God's faithfulness to deliver them time and time again. They saw his sovereignty over their circumstances and their enemies. They saw him keep every promise. And yet, they rebelled against him. Are we guilty of the same thing in our own lives? How has God shown you his faithfulness, both in scripture and in your own life? Do you intentionally recall his past faithfulness as you pray for his care and provision for today? When we reflect on all that he has done, trusting him for the unknown is not an act of blind faith. Evidence two in verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it was the Israelites' sin, their hardened hearts, their constant mistrust and testing of God that provoked him for 40 years. We often struggle to understand how God's judgment can possibly be loving. 
How is it loving for God to rescue people out of slavery in Egypt only to let them die in the wilderness? But we have an inherent problem of perspective. We see easily with our own eyes and our own sense of justice, but struggle to remember that God sees fully what we only see in part. When we endeavor to see through the lens of God's character, when we start with who God reveals himself to be in scripture, we see his judgment, mercy, love, and justice rightly. Evidence three in verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? The consequence of their disobedience was that they would never enter God's rest, the promised land. But it was not their sinful acts alone that kept them from God's rest. It was their disbelief that excluded them, the evil hearts and intentions behind their sin. Disobedience and sin are always the outward evidence of an inward heart of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews is asking us to look at all that God has done and unlike the Israelites, to come to the conclusion that he can be trusted, no matter the circumstance. The wilderness generation's unbelief led them to disobedience, but may our belief lead us to obedience. And verse 19 begins the writer's conclusion. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, what were their marks of unbelief, the three pieces of evidence that we just reviewed. First, they heard and yet rebelled. Second, they provoked God with their sin. And third, they were disobedient. Verses 16 through 19 are a clear warning to the audience of Hebrews and to us. As James says in his epistle, faith without works is dead. Our faith is not contingent on our works, but it is expressed through them. As we see with the wilderness generation, a lack of obedience is evidence of a lack of true faith. Continuing on to chapter four, verses one and two. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The promise of entering God's rest is still available to us today, the author says. It's a different kind of rest than what was offered to the Israelites, but the risk of missing out on it is the same. So what are they told to fear? that any one of their number might fail to reach the Father's rest. This is another call to faithful community. And they should fear the one thing that stands in their way, unbelief. Like them, we must fear unbelief and its consequences. As we see in verse 2, hearing God's word is not enough. Hearing must be coupled with a faithful, obedient response. Our healthy fear and reverence for God, his word, and his ways enable us to guard against unbelief and cause us to cultivate soft, faithful hearts. So let's recap. 
What mistake did the Israelites make? Despite hearing God's voice and seeing his works, the Israelites did not enter God's rest because of their unbelief and disobedience. And this brings us to our main truth for section two. In order to receive the better rest that Christ offers, we must fear and guard against unbelief and its consequences and encourage fellow believers to do the same. That one's a little long. Let's say it again. In order to receive the better rest that Christ offers, we must guard, sorry, we must fear and guard against unbelief and its consequences and encourage fellow believers to do the same. So in guarding against unbelief, how are we to cultivate true faith? First, we must have a right view of Christ. This cannot happen without devotion to prayer and the reading of scripture. Are these vital acts of worship priorities in your own life? Second, we must choose obedience. A right view of Christ leads to a desire to act in obedience, rejecting sin as we place our trust in God. Will you pray and ask God to give you a heart that desires to walk in obedience? Third, we must participate in a healthy community of faith. Community can be challenging, but God created us for it. There is indescribable wealth that waits for us in a life lived with people of faith. So many of us carry deep wounds from our previous attempts at obedience in this area. And will you pray to the God who sees your fear of being hurt again? Will you ask him to point you to a new faith community that will encourage and challenge you with truth, grace, and love? In our third section, the writer of Hebrews presents four pieces of evidence from history that prove God's rest exists, who it was created for, how it is lost, and how it is secured. So let's begin with verses three and four of chapter four. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The first piece of evidence is found in the creation narrative all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 verse 2. Remember, when God rested on the seventh day, he ceased creating and began enjoying his creation and living in personal relationship with the people he had created. And though our God rested on the seventh day, he does not grow weary. He is omnipotent, meaning his power is unlimited. So if he does not need rest, then why did God rest? Well, because while he never tires, we do. We need regular rhythms of rest in our lives to maintain our health and our sanity. And this needful rhythm invites us to recognize that we are not omnipotent. We are not God. 
it also invites us to remember that the same God who created us with a need desires to fill it. So as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, God is the creator of rest. He modeled rest for us as a part of his creative work. And it is only through Christ's redemptive work on the cross that we find true rest. Evidence number two. In chapter four, verse five, the writer takes us back to the time of Moses and the Exodus once once more in referencing Psalm 95. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. The first generation of Israelites who were liberated from Egypt did not enter God's rest. And we have seen the reason why. They did not believe. They did not trust God at his word, despite all that they had seen him do. They lacked true faith. Evidence three. Verses six and seven point us to the time of David and back again to Psalm 95. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Did you catch that good news in verse six? It remains for some to enter it. We saw back in chapter four, verse one, the promise of entering his rest is still open. There is still time as long as it is called today. In this week's scripture passage, the word today is used five times. In its repeated use, there is urgency. Now is the time, don't wait. But there is also joyful invitation. Today can be the day that you choose him. Today can be the day that you make a change to walk in his strength and not in your own. So don't wait another moment to choose the path that leads to his rest. He is patient that none should perish, but that all should come to saving faith in Christ. God has appointed this time in history from now until the coming judgment as today. Until our savior returns, His offer of rest stands, but there will come a day when that door will close. We don't know when that will be. So every today is a day to hear his voice and respond in obedience with a soft heart. Evidence four, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The writer takes us back again to the time of Exodus, but how does Joshua fit in? God worked through Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. God appointed Moses as their leader who would take them to the promised land, but Moses sinned and was not able to enter the land. So God appointed Joshua, who had remained faithful, to succeed Moses and lead the people into the land just as God had promised to their ancestors. So let's go back and read in Joshua. Let's read in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side. 
according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against them for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. Remember that the original audience of Hebrews are descendants of those who were led into the promised land and given rest on every side. The writer is affirming the rest of the promised land that was given to the Israelites. But as good as it was, the rest they experienced in the promised land did not restore what was lost in Eden. There must then be another truer rest that awaits. Moses could not bring the people to it. Joshua couldn't even bring the people to it. But there is another who is greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, who leads us to true rest, Jesus Christ. And it is only through faith in him that we may enter rest. Now the writer uses these four pieces of historical evidence to draw his conclusion in verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. With all of this in mind and all that we know from history, from the faith and apostasy apostasy of those who came before us, this is what we know to be true. God rested from his work, And Sabbath was given so that God's people would rest from their work. When we rest from our work, we don't do nothing. We take on a different kind of work. The work of obedient, active dependence on God. Verse 11 helps us better understand that connection between work and rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We often struggle to understand the seeming contradiction between works and faith. But if we slow down here, I think we can make some sense of that tension. God's rest is something we must strive for. This is not worldly striving, but a faithful act of obedience that is done through dependence upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a focused effort that keeps us from the same kind of disobedience that prevented the wilderness generation from entering God's rest. We must have an active faith, not a passive one. We must strive or we will fall. So what are we striving for? The choice is ours. We can strive for God or for ourselves. One brings rest and the other brings rot. Here's how Charles Spurgeon describes it. Our tendency is to try to do something in order to save ourselves, but we must beat that tendency down and look away from self to Christ. Labor to get away from your own labors. Labor to be clean rid of all self-reliance. Labor in your prayers never to depend upon your prayers. Labor in your repentance never to rest upon your repentance and labor in your faith, not to trust your faith, but to trust alone to Jesus.
now let's look at verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. These verses might seem a little disconnected from what we've just read, but this is the writer's conclusion of this section, and it echoes the call of Psalm 95 to listen to the voice of God when we hear it. As one commentator described it, Scripture is a sharp word of discernment which penetrates the darkest corners of human existence. It is living, never outdated or culturally dead, It is active, it is effective in carrying out God's intentions and capable of utterly transforming those who read it. The word of God offers the promise of true rest, but it also promises to cut deep into the heart, beyond the facade of our Sunday best, discerning and judging our true thoughts and motives. God's word lays bare every corner of our lives that we would rather keep hidden in the shadows. But there is nowhere to hide. Scripture shines the light of truth on our need for repentance from our sin, forgiveness through the blood and atonement of Jesus Christ, and reconciliation to our creator. It is an incredible gift of grace because the word will protect us from judgment if we allow it to do its work. As we do the work of faithful obedience, God's word works with us and for us to show us the way. To do the work of expertly exposing our sin to us so that we may recognize it, repent from it, and receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for it. Our sin will be exposed. That is the promise of verses 12 through 13. Will you invite the word of God to do that work today? Submit to its wisdom? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or will you choose instead to wait until the day when you must give account? That choice is yours. And this brings us to our final main truth. The true and better rest was created by God, is given by Christ, and awaits faithful, obedient, soft-hearted believers. The true and better rest was created by God, is given by Christ, and awaits faithful, obedient, soft-hearted believers. If you have any doubt about the heart of the God that we serve, Listen to these words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Sisters, the rest that we are promised isn't just a hard to understand concept that waits in eternity. It is offered to us today. When we do the work with him, we find rest. But when we do it on our own, believing it is all up to us, 
we labor in vain and true rest eludes us. Sister, you are not enough. I am not enough. We were never designed to be. But the book of Hebrews invites us to place our hope and trust in the one who is more than enough, the one who is all we need. So, members of the jury, how do you find? Justice can never demand two penalties for a single crime. So if Christ has paid our debt, the matter is settled in the eyes of God's law. The defense rests. The charges against us are dismissed. We leave the courtroom to live our lives in the freedom that was bought for us by Jesus, in the gift of rest that begins the moment we accept his punishment for our crimes. For me, a big part of living in that present rest that Jesus secures for us is recognizing that God is sovereign over outcomes. It is up to me to walk in humble obedience to God, to serve where he calls me, and to work with excellence. But in my sinful desires for control and perfection, I often need to remind myself that the results are not up to me. The work I do is an act of worship, and he chooses how to use it. I need to trust God that he will take my meager offerings and bless them as he sees fit. And what about you, sister? Are you living in the already not yet rest that only Jesus can offer? Examine your heart and ask yourself, what is my belief in? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Let his word do its cutting work and expose your need for him. He is inviting you to respond to all that he has done continues to do and promises to do through faithful obedience so that you will not miss out on his perfect rest. And that rest begins today. Will you receive it? This is a rest that is better than any that we can find on our own. A rest that is better than what Moses and Joshua led Israel to in the promised land. A true and better rest that can only be found through faith in Jesus, the one we have all been waiting for and the only one we need.